what a great day to celebrate uh, a milestone for our uh, seniors. And uh, I can't believe I didn't mention this in the first service. So uh, what about those West Stanley Colts? Four in a row, right? Yep. What a, I think I saw somebody put something on social media that uh, West Stanley is uh, one of only two teams across the state that have ever accomplished that. So I don't know who the other one is, but uh, that, yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's pretty awesome. So, uh, so we're going to uh, jump right into the series that we have been in talking about what is worship, you know, and, and really digging into this idea of how do we really worship because one of the things that is hard to define about biblical worship is that it's both an act and an attitude. Uh, there are elements in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about the gathering of the church together, the church coming together uh, to worship, uh, to pray, uh, to hear out of the Word of God. But there is way more that talks about the attitude of worship and what goes into the attitude of worship way more than is ever talked about the act of worship. We oftentimes get that in reverse. Like we spend a lot of time talking about the act of worship and we get so bent out of shape and so divided on where the church should worship, how the church should worship, what style, you know, how long should it be, should we do this, should we do that, should we not do this, should we not do that. And all of those things end up being a distraction from the attitude of worship. Uh, because really what we're going to uh, continue to talk about today is that what happens in us with an attitude of worship should be brought into the act of worship and only facilitates a greater movement of God through that act of worship. And we looked at the uh, words of Jesus in John chapter 4 when he said, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So what that means is that true worship is initiated by God because God is spirit. And when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, God moves us in ways to where when we do worship, uh, we respond in worship. So it's spirit-initiated. But we can't worship separated from the truth of who God is as revealed throughout the Bible. Because if we worship in spirit without a foundation of truth, um, then we can go all kinds of different directions that are not biblical, uh, that are not centered on who he is. But individually, if we worship with bad theology, our worship gets hindered. Uh, and the example that we use there is that when Jesus says, ask uh, whatever you want in my name and I'll do it for you, Jesus isn't saying that we rub, uh, a, a, we, we rub Jesus like it's the magic lamp and the genie pops out and grants our wishes. He's talking about when we ask about a movement of his name, a movement of his spirit that draws those that are far from God to him, those are the prayers that he will always answer because that's what's the closest to him. When we worship as if God should give us what we want because we're faithful enough or we pray over it enough or we're passionate enough, then our worship becomes conditional on whether or not God answers that prayer. God transcends what prayers get answered. God transcends uh, whether or not we get everything or anything we want in this life. So we have to worship in spirit and in truth. And then last week, 
we were challenged by what it means to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And Paul was brilliant uh, in the way that he framed it in the Greek language, that that offering to God is, is a matter of lifestyle. It's a daily choice, it's a daily movement on behalf of the believer to continually offer ourselves back to God. That is the way that we respond to the salvation that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. God doesn't require anything else other than just give our lives back to him. That's it. And that's what a living sacrifice is. So that living sacrifice means God's going to lead us into places to where we serve others in his name. We serve others in ways that make his name known. We also talked about a key truth in understanding worship is sacrifice. And we really see that sacrifice in will, pride, time, and name. Am I living my life following my will or is it God's will? Is it, is it my pride on the line or am I willing to humble myself before God and say, Lord, I am nothing without you. I need, I'm in continual need of your grace. It keeps me from getting arrogant. It keeps me from getting puffed out with some type of self-righteous uh, religious pride, which is so destructive to our heart. When we give ourselves as a sacrifice to God, it's going to require a sacrifice of time because there's always other things that we could do in the pursuit of self. And we sacrifice that as, uh, as a pursuit of the will of God and then name. Am I making my name known or am I making the name of Christ known? It's real easy in today's technological world because of uh, social media and how things can get out online at a such rapid pace that we want to build our own name, build our own brand, build a following. How many likes, how many tags, how many shares, how many people are following, how many people have subscribed, how many people have joined. And oftentimes we get really hooked into building a following for ourselves when as a believer we are to make his name known at the sacrifice of my own name. And that really gets at the heart of sacrificing our ego and our pride and our name for the sake of him. But today we're going to talk about why we worship. Why is it that we are to be worshiping people? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah is going to be somewhere near the middle of your Bible if you're not as familiar with the Old Testament. It's one of the four major prophets of the Old Testament. Between Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, they cover a, the lar a large chunk of the prophetic uh, voices uh, in the second half of the Old Testament. And I'm going to read the passage, we're going to do a little bit of background, but then we're going to jump into five reasons why we worship. And Kyle's joining me again this week. Kyle's one of our elders. Uh, obviously, you see him as one of our uh, worship team members. Um, Kyle and I talked a lot about this series going back probably last year, I think. Yeah, I started talking about it last year. And um, as, uh, you know, the, the series kind of started taking shape, I said, hey, Kyle, you got a lot of passion around this. Why don't you join me and, 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 and be, a, be a voice as a part of this series, you know, on the platform with me? Um, and when the glassy look got off of his face, 
He said, okay. <laughs> you know, I don't think you were expecting that, were you? <laughs> no. So, so he's going he's gonna to be a part of this, and I really appreciate his passion and us being able to work on this series together. So let's leave the, read the text, Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. It was the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending to him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their feet. Uh, they should also say with two wings they covered their eyes, two wings they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to the foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew uh, to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Who should I send as a messenger to his people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. So let me give you just a little bit of background, and then we're going to talk about five reasons why we worship. Um, at the point that Isaiah is called to be a prophet, the kingdom of Israel has split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which had ten tribes, um, and, and their history with their kings was was a lot worse uh, than the southern kingdom. And what I mean by that is there were so many kings that were wicked. There were so many kings that were evil. There were so many ways that the northern kingdom was way more unfaithful to God uh, for a lot longer period of time. So God brings judgment upon the northern kingdom a lot quicker than he does the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom has two tribes that, that, that comprise the southern kingdom, including the city of Jerusalem, which is the center of their worship. It's where the temple is. It's where they do their sacrifices. They make their pilgrimages. And so God is preparing to bring judgment on the southern kingdom. Now, it's, it's later than the northern kingdom. And so um, what Isaiah is doing is he's using the death of King Uzziah as a reference point. And a lot of us do the same thing. Like, we don't always talk about dates. We talk about events. Like some of you say, hey, remember when so-and-so got married and man, we had such a great time and it was such a great evening. Like you may not remember the exact date unless you were the one that got married, you better remember it. But you remember like the location and the weather and who you were with. So you talk about, hey, when so-and-so got married or do you remember when we took that trip to, you know, fill in the blank. We don't always talk about dates. And so the reader, <clears throat> excuse me, the reader 
of this prophetic book of Isaiah would go, oh, okay, so that was roughly around. It is believed that Uzziah died somewhere around 730 B.C., 730 B.C. So that tells you how many years before Christ, you know, we're, we're talking here. So um, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, it was not a normal occurrence in the Bible for people to see God. Uh, usually a couple of things would happen. If somebody was visited by God or an angel, they thought that they were about to be taken into the afterlife, like their life was up. And, and Isaiah's response is very similar. I'm doomed, I'm done. Um, but one of the things that God does through a, a revelation, through a prophet like Isaiah, is he allows every so often for the revelation of who he is to be expanded into humanity's knowledge. And this is one of the most vivid pictures that gets painted about God and what is in God's presence than anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, there are great examples of God's power, God's majesty, God's presence, but this is such a vivid picture of what is being painted for us in these first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And one of the, the first things that we get about this, uh, this, this, this vision, this, uh, this visitation, this pulling into the presence of God, if you will, uh, of Isaiah, is that it's this reminder that God is bigger than I am. God is bigger than I am. Uh, one of the things that's easy for us to do is we can easily lose sight of how big God really is. And why do we do that? When we get so enmeshed in what I want to do, in, in my own um, decisions about what I want to do with my day, my week, my month, my life, and we get so self-absorbed, we lose very quickly this, distinct, this distinction of how big God really is. One of the things that we're seeing in society, across all of society right now, is people are digging in to their own opinion and their own idea of truth and their own idea of what reality is, and there's nothing bigger than what they believe. And if you don't believe like them, you're smaller than them, you are less than them. There is so much across our society that we have forgotten just how big God is. And I know what you're going to say, here he goes again. One of the biggest challenges to us in remembering how big God is, is our devices. Because we're in them all the time. I mean, we're in them for work, we're in them to play, we're in them to text, we're in them to scroll, we're in them to like, we're in them to tag. You know, there are so many things that we do on our devices, and we get so enmeshed in what I want to do on my device that we forget how big God is. When we see that there is this lofty throne, now just imagine this for a second, if you will that there's a throne somewhere above us, and it's lofty, it's lifted up, it's, it's big. The presence of God is on that throne, and the train fills this entire room. Now, the train of a robe or a gown is usually attributed to opulence, to majesty, to wealth, to position. 
the media goes nuts every time there's a royal wedding about the dress and the train coming off the dress. You, you, you've noticed that, right? You know, but I don't see a train filling up Westminster Abbey during a royal wedding. I don't know that anyone could pull that kind of train, and that's the point. That that train fills the entire room. The first thing that Isaiah is reminded of is just how big God is. Uh, when you start to think about how, how big God is compared to us and in the world, you just automatically think of, or at least I do, the creation. God hung the stars. God, God made the mountains from something so big that you can feel so insignificant in to the cells inside your body and the atoms that make up everything. God created everything mm -hmm. to have that kind of power, to, to create in the ways that you see fit and to create us in his image. That's power. That's importance. That, that demands respect. That demands mm -hmm. worship. Um, and even, you know, it's, it's beyond the, the ways of the world that we see. I mean, how many stories have we heard of cancer being healed with, with no explanation of people surviving accidents that have, that should have, should have perished in it. And there's no explanation other than something happened. Well, that something's God. Mm -hmm. He's bigger and he's outside of this time. He's outside of this world. <clears throat> and what, you know, his will is, is going to be done. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest thing I can take away from it is there's no way you can even fathom the size and the magnitude and the importance that he is. So how can you not fall on your knees for that? Yeah. One of the things to think about, like to kind of think maybe on an application of this, is how can you be reminded of the, the, the bigness of God? Like what do you need to do? Like is there a place on your property that you can like get away a little bit from the house and just gaze up into the heavens? Like don't have your phone don't have your tablet, just put it over to the side, leave it in the house for a little bit, and just get out of these things that are of the world and gaze up at the majesty of the heavens. Uh, there's, um, there's this place I used to love to go to um, on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Some of you may have heard of it. There's this pull-off area called Water Rock Knob. Uh, and it's in, it's, it's in this part of the Blue Ridge Mountains between Waynesville and Cherokee. And you climb and you climb and you climb in your car and you pull up onto this uh, leveled out place and you can see off both sides of the knob and you can see four miles. Some of the people that I used to work with at a, at a Christian conference center, we'd go up there at night and the moon would just be so big and so bright. You could see the distinctives of the turns and the bends and the shapes of the mountains even at night. And we couldn't help but sit there and go, man, God is so big. We need that reminder of how big God is because when God gets small, we live small. So don't forget how big God is. That's the first reason we worship. Number two, we worship because God is holy. We worship because God is holy. The, the seraphim, um, they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This is the only time in the Bible we see a reference to the seraphim. 
We hear about the cherubim way more. But this is the first glimpse we get into these beings called the seraphim. They have six wings. They're covering their eyes. They're covering their feet. Some say that, that maybe in Hebrew the feet was a metaphor for something else, so they may have covered their body, that, that they just realize that they can't fully expose themselves in the presence of a holy God. They can't look upon a holy God. They can't be open and exposed in front of a holy God. God and to be holy means that you are that God is set apart. There is none like him. There is no blemish, no sin, no corruption. There is nothing in him that has been compromised. There is great holiness in who God is and the cherubim are singing to that continually to the state that the foundation of the temple is shaking. Any of you here sat through an earthquake? Anybody? I see. Just a couple. Yeah. You, you don't forget it. And every time I've ever read accounts of people that have sat through an earthquake, talk about just this unsettled feeling that everything around me could just crumble in a moment. Powerless. I am small. I am, I am, I am nothing in light of what is shaking around me. That is that distinction between God being holy and and we are not. Holy has always been a, it's been a hard thing for me to define. You, you really only think of holy when you think of Jesus and God. Um, but by definition, like Jeremy said, it, it means to be set apart, to be away from and distinct from uh, as far as being individual. Um, and God is pure. He is without blemish mm -hmm. um, the best way in my mind and maybe it'll help somebody to think about that is uh, how, how rotten this world is that we live in and see the news every day and it's just bad news after bad news and terrible things but to know that God is outside of that and God is not in any part of the evil or the the bad or the wicked that we see, to know that he is all that is perfect. It's, it's just, that's what we cling to. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to know that that is our creator, that's our, that's our God, that's mm -hmm. our Lord. So, yeah. Yeah. When, when, the world's, when the world's too tough, I mean, he's not of the world, so he's, he's not changed by the things that happen. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. The third reason why we worship. So God is bigger than we are. God is holy. But the first recognition of Isaiah, like he sees this image of the seraphim crying out about God's holiness and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah's first reaction is not how great is God, oh, the majesty and splendor of God. Oh, he doesn't echo the seraphim by saying God is holy. Isaiah's first response is that I am filthy. I am filthy. He said, I, it's all over. I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among people of, a, of filthy lips. When we are brought into the presence of holiness, the first thing we recognize is how unholy I am. 
I mean, we can real easily build up this idea that, you know, um, I'm, I'm reasonably moral, uh, I don't do anything really bad, I'm, I'm doing some of the things that responsible people do, so I'm, 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 I must be okay, I'm doing okay. But when we stand in the presence of a holy God, the first thing we recognize is our own sinfulness. And all of a sudden, it's just like everything that is wrong with me as a human being just comes to the surface. It just comes to the forefront of my mind. I'm reminded of how selfish I can be, how self-centered I can be, how wrong my words can be that, that put down others rather than build them up. The times that I, that I chose me over God, the times that I've done things that violate God's standard. I am filthy. When was the last time you had that recognition in your own spiritual life? That God was moving in you in such a powerful fashion that your response was Isaiah's, I am done. I don't think it happens enough for us because of how we build up this idea that we're all just okay enough. Yeah, we're all sinners. Yeah. It's, it's a daily, hourly occurrence. And nobody is, is worthy of the love of God. Nobody's worthy of a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were born into sin and we continue every day. But just knowing that, can set you apart from God because even as despicable of a person or as a filthy person as you are, the things that you've done in the past and in the present, he still desires for you to love him. He still desires company with you. He still desires your relationship and your love. And there's only a few places in on the earth that you can even see that parents mm -hmm. and, and things like that that you can even begin to think that and it's much more than that there's nothing you can do that gets you so far that he does not desire for you to just just have a relationship and a counsel with him mm -hmm. that kind of acceptance and that kind of and some might call it reckless or however you want that is, you know, in a human standpoint, that would be reckless. If, if somebody spit in your face every day, but you were still there every day waiting and hoping that today's a different day. Hmm. I mean, that's just the ultimate model of desire for, for someone and acceptance. Yeah. And this leads to the next reason why we worship. I mean, it almost sounds counter to say, like, I worship because I recognize how filthy I am, but that really is at the heart of worship because when we, hold our, when, we, when we look at ourselves in light of God's holiness, then, man, it moves us in a certain way, that recognition. But what closely follows that recognition of sinfulness and that confession, I am done, is we're forgiven. Like when we recognize just how sinful we are and we pour ourselves out before God and say, God, I am, I am done, like I am nothing, like I am wretched, 
then what follows is forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't something that we deserve, and it's not something that we earn. Forgiveness is confessional, based on our recognition of our own sinfulness. And we see that he touched my lips with it. That was the hot coal off the altar. This coal has touched your lips, and now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. If you can remember the time that you gave your life to Christ, one of the things that when I talk to people that are new believers that are just recently given their life to Christ, one of the things they will say is, I've never felt this alive in my life. And it's not just because we have brought, invited the Holy Spirit into our lives. There's something about the release of guilt, the forgiveness of sin, and, and the release of our sinfulness and our sinful nature that brings us to a place of being alive in God that we don't experience anywhere in any way else. And unfortunately, that that feeling of being alive wanes over time if we don't stay connected to God, if we don't stay recognizing of who God is and my daily need of his grace and his presence. And the people that have truly tasted the forgiveness of sin, you see it in their worship. You see it in, their, in, in the way they carry themselves. You know, God is never short to forgive. If you're in this room today, if you're watching online and you think there's no way God for, can forgive you, you're believing a lie of the devil. Because God will forgive when we confess, when we call, when we call out on his name. There is forgiveness and there is freedom from guilt and shame and regret. I mean, we've established we're, we're terrible people at this point. Um, but for somebody, for something to be there with open arms every time, that's amazing. Every time, without fail. Um, the thing that I always think of is in like a few weeks ago, we talked about the sacrifices that we make to, to honor and worship God. But that's a precedent that he set forth because he loved us first and before we loved him, he loved us. Before we could sacrifice for him, he sacrificed his son for us so we could be forgiven, so we could, we could live forever. And that's just powerful. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of love that you don't see, that you haven't seen, that you can't explain. Um, you know, without, without the, the ability to forgive, without Jesus, this doesn't, this doesn't take place. Mm -hmm. It's an unachievable, unachievable thing. Yeah. So. so Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, recognizes the bigness of God, the holiness of God, his own sinfulness, and then experiences the forgiveness of God, leads to the fifth reason why we worship. And this is a response, if you will. Because what we see in, of one of the, or, or the fifth reason why we worship is that we are called. We are called. Isaiah experiences the forgiveness and then God's res response is, who will go for me? 
Who will go for me and speak my words to my people? And Isaiah's only response in light of what he's seen, heard, and just experienced is here I am, send me. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of rehash over last week. I want to encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, go back and, and listen to it. Because the proper response to our salvation is to say the, the very thing that Isaiah said. Here I am, send me. God did not save us to sit on our rear ends. God did not save us to look at the world and condemn the world that we are called to go into and speak on the message and the name of Jesus. He didn't call us to be lazy people that think all I got to do is go to church every so often and I've done my spiritual duty. That's not a proper response to our salvation. It is to say, here I am, send me, God, I am yours. It's the sacrifice of will. And, a lot there, and I think there are probably some of you in the room right now that there's something God is stirring in you, but you're not willing to say, here I am, send me, because you're afraid of where he's going to send you. You don't want to give up what you have. You don't want to give up the way you've got everything properly placed because you like it just the way it is. Every single one of us who have given our lives to Christ have a distinctive call on our lives. Now, your calling may not be to stand on a platform and deliver a message like a, like a pastor. That calling may not be to send you to the other side of the world. That calling could be, is going to be fleshed out and lived out very distinctive ways for every single individual. You, somebody in this room right now may be feeling a call to, to full-time ministry. And you're hanging on for dear life because you can't get away from the fact that God is calling you, but you're not willing to say, here I am, send me. Somebody in this room might be feeling the tug of missions. And you're not willing to say, here I am, send me, because you are afraid of where it may send you. But we will never have a fully alive relationship with God until we say, here I am, send me, and when God sends, we go. As long as we're holding on to something of our own will, of our own ego, of our own pride, of our own life, we're not going to be in the same position of Isaiah, here I am, Send me. Our job as Christians is to further the kingdom and to let people know about the way to salvation. It's Jesus says in the New Testament multiple times, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Feed my sheep and go tell the world about me. It's an opportunity and it's ways that you can do it here, you can do it locally, you can do it from your home, you can do it internationally. I'm not supposed to be up here. Whenever Jeremy and I were talking about this sermon, it was just something I felt that should be said. Not that I should say it, but here I am. Um, and I didn't feel like I had much of a choice in the matter. When you're called to do it, you, you do it. Um, 
whether or not you get up here and bumble around or not. So that's one thing that I've, I've done. Um, but yeah, there's, there's things on people's lives. There's been multiple things in my life in the past. It's just, just know that anything that's, anything that's decided to further his kingdom, to, to further his name and the reach that you can have with that, anything that's decided to do that won't be for, for bad. There won't be mm-hmm. anything bad coming out of it. Because mm-hmm. he, won't, he won't bring you anything that cannot be overcome. That's right. Here's what I want us to do for just a couple of minutes. I want to invite you to bow your head. We're not going to do a long reflection. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to spend just a moment. Lord, ask the Lord this question. What is hindering my worship of you? What, what is it? Is it? Is it just forgetting how big God is? Is it forgetting how much you're in need of his grace? Are you running from a calling? Knowing the way the Spirit works, he's speaking to many of you in this room right now in some way. Father, what we ask is that we not forget how big you are. Lord, that in some way, every day you remind us of your splendor, of your majesty, of your power, of your goodness. Lord, that we would be people that don't just participate in worship, we would be people that worship. With our decisions, with our actions, with our selflessness. And through that, we experience your presence more and more and more on a daily basis because we lean into you, we depend on you, we cry out to you. We confess to you. Everything we have that is good comes from you. May our hearts be thankful. And may our hearts reflect praise of the creator of the universe who sent his son so that we could be with the Creator. God, we praise you in the best ways we can in our limited language. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.